ready to achieve great heights, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Power Your Performance, the podcast where we dive deep with leaders in the gaming world and beyond and learn the techniques they use to power their lives. I am your host, Gary Kleinman. Ian Seltzer, welcome to Power Your Performance. Nice to have you. Thanks for having me, Gary. I appreciate it. It, it is literally my, my pleasure to have a, an esports strategist, somebody who has an understanding of the emerging market, where it's been, where it is, and, and where it's going. But before we get into that, as we just talked, and I, and I stare out one of the few days that looks like it's nice to be in New York City, how did it start? Did you did you want to be in gaming when you were in college? When you were, well, you were at Penn, right? You were a student. And then what? Fill me in. Yeah, so, so I was actually doing my undergraduate work over at Penn. And, and Gary, to your point, before we dive into it, I think with the view outside, you've kind of hit me on one of those like two weeks worth of weather here in New York, where New Yorkers aren't complaining about it being too cold or too hot. So we, we enjoy, you know, sort of the bliss while it lasts. But, uh, I'm yeah, glad we caught you. You know, life is timing. So it's good timing to catch you. Absolutely. So I was doing my undergraduate work at Penn. And I think that overall, you know, sort of the thing that attracted me, it was always kind of like disruptive trends within the media world. So I guess this is a good transition to, you know, kind of chat about my career and, and kind of how yeah, please. Of gaming. But I was always me and my roommates throughout all of undergrad, we were always like very into gaming and whatnot. We followed the south korean uh starcraft scene and i'm about to date myself severely on <laughs> gong tv and all that fun stuff and, and it was always something that you know we were probably a little bit too early to the party where you know kind of the game that we were very into was team fortress 2 which i guess it's you know claim the fame aside from being a great game it's kind of overwatch before overwatch and so you know, it was something where it, esports was still a very niche industry, but I, I guess for me, you know, seeing a packed arena and tens of thousands of fans in Asia, it wasn't like the farthest fetched concept to me, having been exposed to that, I, sort of in my late teens and early 20s. So when I was in undergrad, I sort of noticed, and it was in my freshman year, I was living in, you know, kind of one of the, the dorms was a historically protected, you know, national site. So the university couldn't renovate it in any way, shape or form. So it was notorious on campus for, uh, for still having tenement-like conditions from when it was constructed, I believe in like the 1920s. So basically we, we just had internet, there was no cable or anything like that. And sort of the thing that I picked up was that was kind of the, I guess, the golden age for better, for worse, sort of piracy and file sharing and that sort of thing. And whether it was myself or my peers, I realized that everyone was consuming content, whether that was film, TV or music via streaming. And basically those were sort of the days where all of the powers that be within the traditional media world were very keen on slapping lawsuits on, you know, a bunch of 19-year-old college kids, which never really struck me as a, a bright way to sort of cultivate an audience. And I think for me, what really resonated was sort of that sense that there is a major disconnect in terms of traditional media distribution and how younger audiences were sort of consuming content. It was very much sort of, you know, not only streaming, but the rise of sort of like on demand. People wanted that convenience of, of having content available when and wherever they wanted to watch it or consume it in any way. 
So basically, I viewed sort of piracy as kind of being a little bit of a market externality. And it was something, you know, consumers generally don't want to engage in, in illegal behavior. It was just sort of something where there was no good framework or distribution mechanism to catch this younger audience. And even if we wanted to pay for, you know, cable or satellite, there was no way that we could get, you know, our our, our sort of, you know, dorm renovated for that. So, you know, that was sort of the, the logical jumping off point of saying, I think that there's something here behind the streaming business. And basically from there, I was spending my summers interning here in New York City at ABC News' digital division. And basically just through my interest in kind of the entertainment world, I fell in with working with Peter Travers over there, you know, the head movie critic of Rolling Stone, Peter was a great guy who really gave me, you know, a lot of free reign for, for a college intern over there. And basically uh, one day, and I will preface this by saying that was at the height of my Judd Apatow, Freaks and Geeks fandom. We had James Franco and Seth Rogen come in promoting the Pineapple Express. And I happened to be living with my closest friend from growing up. And he was a writer on the Harvard Lampoon. We always had this idea to do web sketches and just figure out a way that we could sort of use that budding comedy writer talent and, and kind of get stuff out there into the wild. So I soft pitched Rogan and Franco in the green room and just sort of said like, hey, you know, like we, we want to do these web sketches. Here's our email, you know, feel free to be in touch. No pressure if you're not interested. Never expected to hear back from them. We heard back from Franco that night saying like, hey guys, this sounds awesome. Let's make it happen. So basically my senior year of college, we got an email from Franco's agents basically saying like, hey, he has a break in his shooting schedule up in in Boston. I was doing, I believe, how uh, at the time. And basically I, I threw, I was finishing up class. I threw my laptop and a couple of changes of clothing and a backpack sprinted over to 30th Street Station and caught the first Amtrak up to Boston. And one weekend for the span, for the cost of rented camera equipment, coffee and pizza for the cast and crew, we got three web sketches in the can. Through Franco's sort of connections, we were able to get that at Funny or Die, and they were our distribution partner for it. So the series went live while I was still wrapping up senior year. And I still vividly remember I had access to analytics tools on my like iPhone 2. And <laughs> I was sort of keeping track of how it was doing. So I remember that our first web sketch what got posted in Funny or Die premiered. You know, I was doing pretty well. I got like a couple of, you know, thousand views, which for me being a college student. That's I was pretty good. Yeah. That was, yeah, that was more than enough for me. Yeah, something more uh, than one gets your parents excited and say, OK, fine, you can do this. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's not just a pipe dream. So from there, basically, I started to see like, you know, like, OK, we're, we're starting to see some uptakes in viewership. And it turned out that the sketch had gotten picked up by the reddit crowd and it started to get some traction there so all of a sudden you know by the afternoon that number had ballooned out to like fifty thousand views so i'm just like okay like this is pretty good one unexpected treat and then from there picked it up and put it on their home page and that's when you know the thing really went viral and basically you know by the end of the day we had cracked a couple hundred thousand views on the web sketch and over the course of its lifetime we got over 1.3 million views on the series 
itself. So that was one of those things that kind of validated of saying like, hey, this streaming thing that I, I thought it was a good idea, you know, this is, there's definitely something to this and there's a business to be had. So that kind of informed my decision. I decided to apply for my master's degree over at the London School of Economics. And, and it feels crazy to say this, you know, 10 years out, but the whole reason why I went over there and cried me a river having to, to live in London for a year while I was doing my master's work was that it was the only program in the world at the time that was offering a comprehensive study of media and communication done from the sociology angle, which is crazy. That's like the, the bare minimum for any comms program in, in academia nowadays. But that's how it was back then. And basically, I fell in with a group of professors who were doing a lot of work on the purely academic side of streaming media. And I ended up writing my dissertation on monetization models behind premium video content in the U.S. And at the time, that was really only Netflix, where you know streaming was still just a, a value add that they had in addition to their mail order DVD business. And then you know Hulu was sort of out there way back when. So I guess it was one of those rare times of, you know, having done that and said, like, hey, there, there's something interesting in the water that's going to happen in Hollywood. Being in my early 20s was one of those rare times where you kind of pick up and move anywhere in the world with a suitcase. New York was always sort of home to me by nature of growing up in the area and having family here. So I figured, hey, I'm going to give L.A. a shot. It seems like, you know, it's that industry is pretty ripe for disruption out there. So I showed up over there and basically kind of, you know, the first... I was fortunate enough that the guys I knew over at Funny or Die tossed me a bone and gave me an internship on their marketing and biz dev team as it was sort of getting settled in LA. But my first break actually came at a talent management firm. And, you know, it, it was just an amazing way of, you know, starting off in the mailroom there and really cutting my teeth in traditional Hollywood. I focused in on like IP and licensing. The firm that I was at, you know, worked on optioning and selling Game of Thrones to HBO. It was a fascinating time to be there. So basically, you know, through there, I sort of had my crash course in how traditional Hollywood sort of worked. And, you know, all kind of the stakeholders and, and and just the broad strokes of it. From there, I ended up at Paramount's digital division over there. We were one of the first subsets of Hollywood that was essentially working on, you know, original web series over there. One of our, my favorite projects I've worked on in my career was we had a output deal with Ben Stiller's production company, Red Egg. So we worked on a show called Burning Love that was actually a, a mock of The Bachelor and Bachelorette-type shows. And basically, it premiered on Yahoo abroad. And due to how successful it was, NBC Universal picked it up for a run on linear television here in the U.S. And it was one of the first examples of, you know, a show, a web series premiering abroad and then being repurposed for television, which is kind of now, as we can all attest to, one of the main business models of the content industry. So it was just awesome to be there sort of on the front lines of kind of like the Wild West days of streaming. I think that the unfortunate thing was that we were probably a little bit too early to the party over there. And timing is everything, as you said earlier, Gary. So basically the, the studio had no idea what we were doing. They were sort of looking at us as a traditional sort of like subset of motion picture right. marketing. And we were running at, at you know, like a lean and mean startup. So they kind of scratched our heads and didn't get it. So unfortunately, the division didn't survive. But for me, I was pretty young at the time. And basically, I got scooped up 
onto the content team by Hulu. We had done a, a web, their, one of their first original web series called The Booth at the End. And basically from there, for me, it was dream come true. Having written my dissertation on them, I thought that they were up to, to doing really interesting things and to kind of be there during like the early days when, you know, it was a real startup. We showed up to our little schlubby offices in, in Santa Monica, you know, with, uh, with jean sneakers and a button down. I was probably the nicest dressed guy. Yeah, I would there, think so. <laughs> yeah, most of our, you know, most of our staff were, were you know, devs or coders who were really <laughs> just like next level people. But it was like your very stereotypical sort of like West Coast startup thing of like you'd show up and, you know, it would be people doing keg stands at like 10 a.m. or whatnot. And, you know, we'd be sitting there in the content review and just like, we have we have a day of work here <laughs> to each their own. But it was an awesome experience. It was just really fascinating to be there. We were in charge of all the licensing for the company. We launched, you know, their originals team, which now goes on to win Emmys. We just like couldn't be prouder of the work that we had over there. And basically, you know, we were over there and it was just like such an unbelievable experience to sort of be there firsthand and, and you know the company was rapidly evolving we had a liquidity event and i think that you know our, our media owners coming from that sort of very traditional world sort of called it and so like hey it's time for the company to sort of button up and go from being you know in the angry teenager phase of a startup to being you know a little bit more mature and that was fine that was where the company needed to go but not quite my cup of tea so i ended up at michael eisner's digital studio that was called Voodoo. We were focused on web first content over there. So kind of if I were to sum up in a nutshell, it was kind of Quibi before Quibi and a little bit more successful than Quibi. <laughs> I will add. <laughs> Who was it? Only... <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I mean, that's got to be the uh, biggest failure in the history of media. Yeah, I, I mean, it's once again, timing is everything, right? And it's to, to be launching kind of that mobile first content business. And then all of a sudden COVID hits and everyone is stuck at home for the better part of a year. Yeah, not, not much you can do to sort of fight the tape on that one. But fortunately, we were well before all of that. But anyways, it was a great experience over there. And basically the opportunity to sort of work with Michael and he brought a lot of his lieutenants from the Disney company over there. Specifically, the guys who I was pretty close with were in charge of building out Disney's parks business abroad. And, and also, you know, a lot of folks were kind of instrumental in setting up the business model for ESPN and just the, the way that those folks looked at the media business. It was a true learning experience. I'm just like so fortunate to have. It was a completely unique way of looking at IP and sort of figuring out new ways to monetize and repurpose content to sort of resonate with new platforms and for younger audiences. So I think, you know, that has sort of done me really well, you know, as things kind of went into the esports and sort of gaming world. But, you know, kind of long story short, I had a great run out there for the first five years of my career. And it was just really unbelievable in terms of luck and timing to just kind of be there in the front lines of sort of, you know, like the early days of streaming and that sort of first wave over there. But at least for me, you know, New York was always sort of pulling me back. And like I mentioned earlier, it, it's home and it happened to be a media capital of the world. So I was fortunate enough that I wasn't looking at torpedoing my career in any way, shape or form. And sort of the game plan when I got back was like, I just figured, hey, I'm going to end up just working for, you know, uh, another for a big media company here in New York. And that's probably going to be my career and, and whatever. But, you know, 
I guess life had other plans and I couldn't be happier with how things worked out. So basically as I was still unboxing my stuff from, from LA, I had a couple of contacts within the early stage investor community here in New York. And basically there was a company coming in that was pitching video game slot machines called GameCup. And basically a couple of investors tapped me and just said like, hey, would you mind coming in and sitting in with us for this meeting? We don't know anything about video games and we don't know anything about slot, slot machines and gambling. So I said like, sure, like why not? And as I mentioned earlier, gaming had always been a big part of my life, whether it was growing up or sort of, you know, seeing the early days of esports and in college. So I was really excited to kind of, you know, look into that world and see what was going on. So it actually ended up being a really fascinating company that we invested in the seed round for. And all of a sudden, I found myself working as an early stage investor. Our, our firm is called Pierce Yates Ventures, and we focus on seed stage companies and sort of the esports, media, sports, and fintech ecosystems here in New York. So, at least for me, from there, we started looking out and so then, hey, if you're going to deploy capital into the traditional sports world, you're going to have to cut ridiculously large checks that will probably have little to no impact that you can measure over there. And, and it sort of seemed like esports was kind of the early days where you can make a material right, impact. So, so you're sitting at the VC and, and basically you're analyzing the opportunity, right, in terms of do we deploy capital into what is a relatively new and unproven vertical, right, in terms of monetization. I don't, I, I think it was proven in terms of engagement because people have been gaming in, in large numbers for quite some time. Twitch obviously brought that from a streaming, which is your background, in into kind of the real world and saying now it's viable and it's a, it's acceptable. But as you're, as a VC looking at an esports organization, what are the top two or three things you're saying? This is what they have to have for us to want to deploy any capital. Yeah, I think for us, we were sort of looking at it, you know, and once again, this was sort of the the early days of, of esports. So it's basically as we were sort of looking at, it, I would say that the things that, you know, kind of moved the needle for us as a team and sort of looking at the pro team investment side of things, it was what was an identifiable brand? What were the video game titles that they were active in. And at the time that was around when Blizzard was was about to launch Overwatch League. So that was sort of top of everyone's mind. And then we really just wanted to have founders that were willing to hustle and, you know, had a vision that they wanted to execute against. So basically, you know, at least for me, in terms of mapping out a little bit of the transition there, to your point earlier, Gary, uh, there was something that stood out to me about the content business here. And it seemed like streaming at Hollywood was just getting a little bit stagnant, where it was just, you were kind of rehashing the old business model of, of television, which it works. It's enormously profitable, as we can attest to today with everyone launching their own, every media company on the planet launching their own, owned and operated streaming platform during the pandemic. But for me, it's just kind of seemed like more than the same. And, you know, once then back to the theme of sort of disruption media world, what really kind of moved the needle for me with esports as kind of being an area of interest was that it was the first subset of the media world where 
as you mentioned earlier, with specifically with Twitch, where it was VOD streaming content was the bare bones minimum exception from a millennial from a millennial audience. It wasn't just some luxury like it was at Hollywood. So at least for me, that's what really kind of raised my eyebrows on it. And then I was fortunate enough that before I moved back from LA, I had a couple of roommates who were sort of working in, in the local sort of media startup world and had some ties into the esports world. So one weekend we were sitting around, it was like a, a Sunday, I believe, and they were just like, hey, we have an extra ticket to the major league gaming finals in Anaheim at the Honda Center. Do you want to go? And I just said, like, yeah, sure. Why not? Always been interested in it. Could be a fun experience. And I showed up and it was like 12,000 fans just going completely nuts. And they had driven that on just grassroots marketing alone. And I was just like, whoa, even with just like a huge television size marketing budget, you know, at Hulu, I can only drive a fraction of these eyeballs. You know, and these people are doing it for a live event. Like, this is crazy. It was great. So, I, yeah, I think we, we, we've all, everyone I know that has been in gaming in some form or another had that that eye-opening experience where you actually went to an arena. Mine was the Oakland Coliseum. And if I closed my eyes, I was at an NBA game, you know, screaming and yelling, moms and kids, dads and kids, buying merch. And it's just massive video screens and teams competing against each other in a game that I certainly did not follow and I didn't understand why anybody was screaming at any given time. But the atmosphere was just mind-boggling over a game. And, and the interesting thing is, it is that, but does that make it a business? Yeah. And, and, and I think somewhere in there, there's, there's a phrase I use frequently, it, it's easy to find a gap in the market. It is not so easy to find the market in the gap. And, and I, I just wonder if even the excitement in these arenas. Is there a market there? I know there's a gap because 12,000 people are going and they're sharing it and it's multi-generational, but is that a sustainable business? I had a conversation with somebody yesterday and another investor in, in this space, and they only invest in peripherals in and around gaming and not in gaming itself. And I think so with your background, getting back to, you know, your journey, where is that opportunity? And yeah, how, how do you identify it? What do you do to test it? Because there's so many people and I know the people that, you know, when we look at power your performance, you know, part of the performance we look at is not just gaming performance, but financial performance, investment performance, community and what have you. Where is that? Absolutely. And, you know, it's. I think I'll give you, you know, kind of a multi-part answer to the question here and a little bit of will dabble in kind of various experiences within the esports world. So, you know, the, the pro team that we ended up investing in and led their seed round was called Rogue. And basically I got to know the co-founder and CEO through the due diligence process. And they they sort of got to know my background and 
hired me off to be their first commercial employee and, and just head up, you know, building our content studio. And, and essentially, you know, being a startup, I was a man of many hats. So, you know, being in charge of merch, partnerships, you, you name it, it was a biz dev thing that fell on my plate. And essentially, you'll get a kick out of this. I started over there when I was like 29, going on 30. And the team is headquartered at in Las Vegas. So I would actually, even though I was still living in New York, I would spend a lot of time traveling and working out there at the team frat house, for lack of a better term. And at, you know, age 29, I was the oldest guy there yes. by like a solid like six, yeah. seven years. And, and I remember every time that I would show up, they would be like, Uncle Ian is here. And I'd be like, oh, come on, guys. Can it be your like cool older brother from New York that comes back with like really awesome vinyl for you guys? And they're like, you just said vinyl, Uncle Ian. It was just like, ah, oh, no, like, and like, so that stuff. But it was really just a fascinating experience to kind of see that world firsthand. And I think that, you know, being there on the front lines, we were fortunate enough with the team and everyone there that the company was acquired a year and a half later. So I think that we missed out on a lot of the, the sort of growing pains over there. And I flip back onto the investor side. But yeah, I think that there's sort of been, and I experienced this especially when I was working for the team, that there was sort of, you know, like a couple of phases. I think that you can go in with the evolution of sort of e esports and, and, you know, revenues and kind of like there's been a big disconnect between private markets and sort of the enthusiasm and FOMO of the investment community. And, and, you know, as you said, like what are real tangible revenues here? And I think that sort of, you know, the first phase was sort of part of the, the ad sales world where it kind of became, you know, you had a lot of pro teams sort of get whether it was major investment packing or a cross pollination of traditional sports owners. I, I think you're ones that come to mind would be, you know, Jerry Jones, buying complexity and, and what yeah, Bob Craft and in Boston. And, and, right. You know, the, the list goes on. But I think with there, you know, that was sort of like round one of saying like how can we have an audience grab to sort of enhance our traditional media and sports properties. So that sort of happened and that became like a scramble of just okay, how do we how do we sort of monetize this? So I think that the first phase in, in terms of trying to do that was really on the ad sales and marketing side of things. So you kind of saw like just really, really big and perhaps unjustified sort of, you know, deals that were being cut between major sponsors and esports teams, I think specifically, where the real cul culprits here. I think the professional leagues, you know, did a better job at executing against this. But basically, I feel like on the corporate side of things for big media buyers here in New York, it sort of hit that point where it was just, we need a younger audience. And what's sort of that number uh, total viewers that we could throw on a PowerPoint slide that gets presented to top brass in our C-suite here once a quarter to just show that we're involved with an esports world and that we have a younger audience or whatnot. And that's fine. I think that that worked for about a year or two, but all of a sudden, you know, sponsors started to say like, well, what's my tangible ROI on this? What am I getting? And I think that the answer from a lot of folks in particular the team side of things was a yeah the conversion is not there yeah that was pretty lacking i think the part of it you know it's 
I think that, you know, it's every entrepreneur has their respective journey. A lot of these proteins, you know, with the exception of your team liquids, your cloud nines, which are legacy businesses, let's be very clear that have been around for, you know, nearly two plus decades at this point. So let's cut those guys out. But a lot of the teams, you know, it's kind of, they've been run as startups. There tend to be gamers at its core, which is great. That's what you need. But the biz staff tends to be pretty, you know, slim and it tends to be folks who their only experience has been in the world of video games and esports. And there's always been a lack of sort of, you know, basic business fluency within the space. And that stuff that, you know, it's high tuition in the school of life. It's difficult to sort of teach that, you know, to a 20 year old who's stuck, you know, who gets just like put in charge of doing a, you know, a partnership of Allstate while they're working at an esports team. So, you know, those sort of things, you can make it, you can make it last for, you know, a year or two tops, but it's only a matter of time before, you know, brands and agencies start to wake up and say like, well, what are we getting out of this? There are a couple of notable exceptions to the rule. I loved what, and I think that the connective tissue there is that they're folks that have really understood kind of the gaming community and, and doing things that are unique and really resonate with gamers and have that sort of tongue-in-cheek understanding of the community that they're trying to advertise to. So one of my favorites, it was for Arby's and they did an activation for CSGO, which, you know, is a first-person shooter. So they took a couple of top players over there and they actually brought them to a a shooting range where they had them target Arby's roast beef sandwiches. And it was just kind of like, see what happens. And, you know, like to this day, it, it remains one of my favorite activations within the space. And it went like, you know, it was really successful for the community. You had a lot of people sharing it and it made sense. It was a lot of fun. It kind of understood, you know, they understood the audience that they were trying to market to over there. But I think that those are unfortunately sort of, you know, few and far between. So well, but, but that's there, but that's content. I mean, that that's not <clears throat> necessarily the e-sport. I mean, it, it, it is a content play. Uh, as opposed to the gameplay, so to speak. And, and eSports is certainly built on gameplay and competition. Now, if you look at all the, the, the top organizations, they now look at themselves and they call themselves an entertainment media company more than a gaming company, and they're producing content. Now, I don't know if that's successful or not. I mean, you can look at FaZe Clan and their a billion dollar merger on it with a SPAC that was kind of put on hold because numbers didn't get to where they should get. And I know I think in the last couple of days they announced a collaboration with producing content with Disney for, for 12 months and you go, okay, well that, that's kind of an interesting content play. So what is the future from, you know, you, you've seen it historically, where does esports game gaming i look at completely different you know the three billion people that game every day the bulk of that are just people casually or competitively playing with their game their their friends but esports which gets all the attention or most of the attention where's it going yeah so i think with with that one it's kind of a little bit of a mix right if we're to go into you know sort of what's the the second phase of you know kind of esports missing the mark where you know it's we're we're in much more evolutionary than revolutionary phase of the business to your point i would certainly say you know once kind of a a little bit of sort of the the ruse for lack of a better term of ad sales and marketing kind of let up 
and people got wise to to sort of failings on that side. That became, you know, sort of the next buzzword that I saw was content, you know, and that's, as you said, everyone was kind of branding themselves as a media business. And, you know, you guys heard my background earlier. I, I just didn't see it. Once again, you were kind of marketing to an audience that fundamentally they they don't watch long form content. They don't like content, bizarrely enough, it's very well produced or too slick or anything like that. I think that's kind of just by nature of growing up on Twitch and, and UGC. So basically from there, it's sort of that ability to have a full a fully fledged licensing strategy that you know works in with Windows in the US and abroad. That that gets tossed out the window immediately. And then fundamentally, I think that you're dealing with a generation that has grown up predisposition to not paying for content and beyond that, not having advertisers against that content unless they're being integrated into it. So I think that that was kind of like the, the next sort of, you know, that was phase two of, of revenues trying to work itself out. And that during the pandemic, I would say that sort of led up of, folks kind of saw wasn't really working out. And then from there, I think that, you know, Web3 uh, of all things, you know, sort of NFTs and whatnot was kind of the next phase we're sort of in now of people trying to to make sense of that area. And only time will tell. I think it's just such early innings. There's obviously a lot of promise. We're very bullish about certain applications, particularly from the platform side of things. But we've yet to see that trickle down into kind of the sports space. But I think that, you know, that these thing that's overall that's kind of like you know been top of mind for me as an investor over the past couple of years has been that so much of the esports world in terms of looking at new startups and businesses um you're reliant on ip that's coming from one of the major video game publishers and there's only so much latitude that you have to do things and create a sustainable business model before the publisher either a shuts you down or just comes knocking on your front door saying like hey we want to cut there's been a lot of talk about sort of developing the next great game that could live outside of the publishers and whatnot which i think interesting things can happen in the indie video game community absolutely no question that's a little bit of an externality Play to earn will have its place within the ecosystem. TBD, I don't think it's going to be the be all end all. But when you chat about, you know, games are coming from the major publishers, which you could count on a single hand, most of them being based in Southern California. Um, it really is, it, it's eerily reminiscent of the tentpole model in traditional Hollywood, where you're dealing with games that, take, that have bankable, recognizable IP. Uh, development cycles that last for years have hundreds of millions of dollars spent against, you know, game development and a marketing budget itself. So, you know, you have every iteration of, you know, the latest Call of Duty, for example, coming out. And, you know, it's really kind of hard to, to break away from that. Um, so basically what I've kind of focused in on are what are startups within the esports and video game community that are complementary to publishers and their marketing efforts and in audience engagement and cultivation over there and don't cannibalize their existing business. So if you're... Well, but their existing couple, business, interestingly <laughs> enough, uh, and maybe it's, it's, it's a natural progression in business, is there's a lot of consolidation happening in gaming. I mean, the, the Activision 
Blizzard, uh, Take Two, and and Zanga. You know, there there's just a, a whole lot of that. So it's kind of interesting. I, I do agree with you. I think the independent game market will explode because the tools are ready readily available for uh, game developers to create games without the publisher. And there's plenty of distribution channels for them to, to try to light a fire in a, in a community, which is kind of interesting. Um, but a lot of that, to me, says the, the growth of gaming is uh, unlimited, where the growth of esports may not be uh, unlimited. We, we talked earlier before we started our conversation of, of a public company that we we both know which i will not name for for uh, intentionally that they announced today taking a 36 million dollar hit on their esports entities because uh quote unquote um there was no liquidity in the esports entities when that happens today on the top of newsletters that's got to impact investment in the space. I mean, $36 million hit, I don't care who you are, <laughs> whether you're Jerry Jones or not, that's a big number. And and does that have, you know, um, is, is does that splatter go so deep that it, it curtails investment? Then if you look at current economics uh, in the country with inflation and VCs are saying, hey, entrepreneurs, you you better tighten your belt because there's less money for us. Where does all that go in gaming? Yeah, absolutely. I think for the for the gaming side of things, right, whether it's gaming or esports, uh, there's a certain amount of this where the genie is out of the bottle, the toothpaste is out of the tube, wh- whatever you want to say about it. There's been a consumer behavior, you know, certainly with the media and content business, that you know there's a displayed interest in that so you know with the economy sort of you know heading in the unfortunate direction that it seems like it is yes i think folks are going to have to tighten up their bootstraps a lot of the sort of fat is is going to go away for better or for worse and i think that'll serve as a big sort of market correction of what sort of real and tangible uh versus things where a little bit more flimsy uh on the business model side of things. But I don't think that it's like, you know, that esports of, you know, wanting to be involved in watching pros at the highest level compete within video games. Uh, I, I don't think that the fundamental act of seeing that is just gonna disappear off the face of the earth. And certainly, you know, in a in a world where we're starting to, you know, dare I say knock on wood, you know, come out of the pandemic and sort of think about what things look like post COVID, uh, gaming is certainly only rising is kind of, you know, the fastest growing uh, subset of the entertainment world. So at least for us, I think that there are a couple of areas that are going to be really interesting. And I think that, you know, the, the primary is trying to think about things. And once again, this comes with a big caveat of sort of assuming that things can be done safely uh, with COVID, you know, and any future variants that the world might have to toss at us. Or, you know, whatever's the next thing, monkey pox or whatever nightmare the world has to throw our way, uh, we can still get together in person and convene safely. It's sort of events to kind of that, or any sort of business for that matter, that can kind of bridge the, the physical and the digital world. I can walk you through a couple more tangible examples here of companies we've invested in or ones I've advised for that I think do a pretty good job of this. So I think that one, if we're to talk about, you know, kind of marketing uh, and advertising and things to kind of, you know, 
act as being complementary to your big video game studios, esports leagues, teams, and whatnot. We invested in a company called Gameway, and they're essentially doing how to boil their business model down to one sentence. Uh, luxury video game lounges at airports, uh, which is something that if you kind of think about younger generations and sort of where their interests lie, uh, that's, you know, kind of a home run. And as we think about it, you know, it's something that a publisher would kind of look at that and say like, hey, that's interesting. They're captive. They're, you know, capturing a young audience at an airport. Right. Like no no marketing budget that we would spend would even touch, you know, an airport. So like, great, like that's, that's fantastic. Let's figure out a, work, a way to work with these guys. I think that other areas that could be really interesting that are kind of like within esports and gaming, of course, I, I have to say it, but it's going to be esports uh, betting. I, I think that we're, you know, a ways off on that. And we've invested pretty deeply in sports gambling here in the U.S., uh, and, and I think the kind of the way to think about that strategically is that we're not even at the point here in the U.S. market where sports gambling is across the line and ready to go in all of the states and has a regulatory and compliance framework set up for that. So kind of it's going to be two things need to happen. First, sports gambling uh, needs to be figured out across the board here. Then iGaming uh, and virtual casinos is going to be next up. And then you have esports. But you better believe that when that gets here, even though maybe a few years out, uh, that will be a big thing. Uh, you know, and that's something that, you know, particularly for esports on the pro, on like we're at the top tier pro and team side of things, that is a big sort of, you know, area that a lot of folks are chasing. And I think that, you know, esports startups that do a lot of work in terms of capturing data. And, you know, packaging it up in a nice, neat way to existing sports books or ones that specialize in esports. That's an area that, you know, you know, continues to be really interesting for me, even though it may be a, few, uh, a little bit out. I think that player performance uh, through a hard data and analytics side of things. Uh, could be uh, in another really interesting area. I advise for a company called Chompria. They do just that for Overwatch players. And, you know, that's something that, you know, I only see that area of the market continuing to grow. And as you think about people competing, it's only logical that, you know, it's you see everyone, you know, if I go for a run out here in the park, everyone's wearing their Fitbit, you know, tracking and tracking their performance for that. There's no reason to think why it wouldn't. Uh, sort of bleed over into the esports world. It's an area where people are sort of spending so much time and effort. Uh, those sort of tools seem like an area that's pretty ripe to to grow. And once again, something that falls outside the realm of expertise of a video game publisher. Um, I think that another area that could be interesting in terms of thinking about that sort of you know transition from physical to, to or digital to physical, I should say, um, is is thinking about e-commerce and how that could be levered. Um, and sort of thinking about transition and kind of conversion of customers over there. A company I advise for that's doing just that is called Kudos Labs. They're based in Berlin and Stockholm. And they basically function as, you know, kind of think about it as rewards points for gamers and sort of, you know, setting up a network of, you know, of retailers that, uh, that, you know, are in partnership with them. And that ability to take a gamer uh, you know, that has only experienced a brand in a, in a sort of digital realm and convert them into saying, you know, that they're walking down the street 
and saying like, oh, hey, that's cool. Like I have some reward points that I can spend, you know, at this, let's just say for argument's sake at this McDonald's, like great, I'll, I'll go in there and do it. So I, I think that that's, you know, another area that could certainly be interesting. Um, and then I think that, you know, another area that I see growing pretty rapidly would be the player wellness uh, and, and nutrition space. And, and it's something that I can vouch for certainly on my side of the, of the pro team of it's everybody looks at esports pro players and they go like, Oh, those guys can play for like 20, 30 years. And it's just like, no, absolutely wrong. They're, they're on football linebacker time. And there's yet to be, you know, just due to spending 20 plus hours a day, staring at a screen, practicing, grinding away. And, and that's just kind of what it takes comparable to, you know, a professional athlete. Uh, and basically I think that you see a lot of burnout uh, over there and just, just cognitive abilities going way downhill by the time that folks hit their late twenties and there's not really a good safety net within the Yeah, the I mean that's certainly the space that, that skins plays in and some of the products that, that we are actually coming out with. And there are several um ingredient manufacturers that really are focused on um, ingredients like Cognizant that that are great for brain health and speed and accuracy. Uh, and, and overall body wellness, including some eye products to in, in, improve not only vision, which they say they can, but to reduce blue light and what have you. And and think as that becomes more readily accessible and understandable by education, it will be um, a daily regiment for gamers. So in the interest of time, I know that we have a whole list of things that I'm going to follow to see if your prognosis, your prognosis of gaming is going to be accurate. And some of these things do come to light. Uh, I appreciate the time, the insight, the education and the knowledge. Um, and I'm sure we will continue this conversation again. Ian, I appreciate the time, dude. Hey, my pleasure, Derek. Thanks so much for having me. All right, now go back and uh, enjoy the weather for the three days that it's going to last. <laughs> right. ah. I take care. Thanks, Will Ian. Do. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the MAP Esports Podcast Network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. Please be sure to leave us a review and follow us on your favorite podcast player.